Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. This podcast is designed to hold space for honest conversations. From purity culture to faith, sexuality, relationships, identity, culture, deconstruction, and more. My hope is to look doubt in the face, be curious, seek God, and ask meaningful questions to address any elephant in the room with openness, nuance, and grace. I won't pretend to be an expert and definitely don't have all the answers. And though it may feel easier and more comfortable to exist in the black and white, I invite you to discover God with me in the gray and unexpected spaces. So whoever you are, whatever you do or don't believe, you are welcome here and have a seat at this table. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective Podcast on iTunes. So each week when a new episode drops, it'll download straight to those devices. And while you're at it, if you feel so inclined, leave us a five-star rating and written review. It would be so helpful to get our message out there. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I am your host, Kat Harris. A special shout out and thank you to Newsstand Studio at One Rock Center. Thank you for producing this episode of the Refined Collective Podcast. Be sure and follow along with them on Twitter, at Rock Center NYC, or on the Instagrams, at Rockefeller Center. Also, you may have heard that I started a new fun monthly group coaching call for free. It's once a month. The next one is on Tuesday, February 15th. And how you get to join that call and get that Zoom link is by joining Patreon. So all the Patreon members are welcome to come. If you're already a Patreon member, just go to your Patreon login, patreon.com slash the refined collective to get the Zoom link for that. If you would like to join our Zoom coaching call. It's super awesome. Just sign up for Patreon for $5 a month. How awesome is that? Last month's was so fun and it just felt really cool to be on a call with people and doing community. I think there were like 15 of us there. So it's not like 3,000 people and you're not going to get heard. Everyone got to ask questions. We got to do some coaching stuff. It was really fun and impactful. And also another thing that we are doing on Patreon is dropping our podcast episodes a week early, ad-free and unedited. (laughs) So you're getting to see my awkward, unedited self and oftentimes some F-bombs and flummy coughs and stuff like that. But if you are like, oh my gosh, I love this episode. I want to listen to next week's episode right now. You can on Patreon. So next week's episode is live today and it is about grieving without going into a shame spiral. Really, I'm just sharing kind of the update from my final podcast episode of the year where I talk about I kind of suck at dating, (laughs) how I got dumped and where I'm at now. And I'm also talking about, man, I miss the church, but the church kind of still feels triggering. So what do I do with that? So that's next week's episode that you can listen to today. All right. So this is the final part in a three-part series, $7 a day to six-figure book deal. Part one was two weeks ago. It was all about how my first job out of college, I made $7 a day and then got into the photography world and now run a six-figure photography business. 
part two that went live last week was all about how I started The Refined Woman, which now has a lot of different legs to it, i.e. this podcast, and what I did wrong, (laughs) what I did right. Basically, The Refined Woman was a very expensive side hobby slash fashion blog slash the only real vision I had with it was that I wanted to get free clothes. And I was super obsessed with growing numbers instead of focusing on people and impact for a long time. I get so many people who come up to me in real life and on the DMs that are like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start a business. I'm going to start a blog. Okay, if that's you, listen to this episode because I share all the freaking mistakes I made, like really bad mistakes that could potentially save you a lot of time and money. So listen to that. And then part three, hello, we are here today. How the hell did I get a six-figure book deal when I've never written a book before and I almost failed a remedial level writing course my final semester of college? Yeah, we're talking about that story. Now, why am I doing this series? Well, a huge part is because about a month ago when I was cleaning house, I found an old... I don't know, like a W-9 or whatever my tax return or my tax return. I found a tax return. That's what those things are called. And I found my tax return from 2012, so 10 years ago. And I brought in $4,300 for the year. And oh my gosh, I was so broke. And I look back and I'm like, how did I afford groceries? And how did I even pay rent? And so it was just kind of this moment where I was like, dang, like here I am 10 years later sitting in a condo that I own. Thank you to my book deal. And I have a thriving photography business. I have a growing business at The Refined Woman. And I think I constantly focus on what I haven't done, what I haven't achieved, where I'm not in my life. And I can feel a constant sense of lack because of that or like a victim. Well, why is God blessing everyone else and God is not blessing me? I feel like the forgotten sister or something. I feel like the bridesmaid, never the bride. And when I pause and look at my past, yes, I can see stories and circumstances that would be fuel to the fire of an ammunition to tell me a story that I'm not worthy, that I'm never going to get what I want, that I'll always be the friend, not the lover, that I'm always going to struggle financially, yada, yada, yada. However, if I pause and really look at my story holistically, holy cow, I went from making $7 a day to a multiple six-figure business. Like what? I've gotten to live in LA, San Diego, New York. I've traveled all over the world for my photography business. I've gotten to write a book. I don't even know if I'm saying I have gotten to. I don't know if that is even grammatically correct. But remembering where I've come from has shifted my heart into a posture of gratitude. Not only that, remembering where I came from helps me to believe in possibility of things right now that feel impossible could actually be possible. If you would have told me 10 years ago that I would have written a book for HarperCollins, I would have been like, you're out of your ever-loving mind. I don't write. I take pictures and I don't even really get paid a lot of money for it. I can hardly pay my bills. If you would have told me 10 years ago, 10 years from now, you will have two thriving businesses. You will have written a book about sexuality. You will have a team that works for you. We'll have associate photographers under you. Nope. 
I was so busy surviving, I couldn't even think of the possibility of thriving. And so now I pause and think, what are those things right now that feel completely out of reach? That feels silly almost. Like like 10 years ago, writing a book was silly. That wasn't in my plan. That's not what I wanted to do. What if I allowed myself to dream bigger in a way that I haven't before? Because look what's possible. Look what's possible. These episodes aren't to toot my own horn. Sometimes you have to see it to believe that it's possible for you. And sometimes you have to look back on your own story and preach to yourself about what's possible through your own story. So my hope and intention through this is that you'll be encouraged, you'll be inspired to dream big and see so that then you could believe and give yourself the permission to have outlandish dreams that you think would never be possible because you never know. And like Justin Bieber says, never say never, my friends. So before I share my story, my book process, I'm going to break down the top seven questions I get about book writing and the publishing process. Just want to get those out of the way with because I feel like a lot of times I promote these episodes and I'm like, I'm answering all these questions for you. And then I really just answer them very quickly at the end. So I thought maybe I will answer them quickly on the front end. Number one, do you go with a literary agent or do you fly solo? Okay, I went with a literary agent and here's why. I believe that literary agents have relationships simply that I don't. For example, if I just cold email someone, like a a person to be on my podcast and I have no connection or no relationship to them, I sometimes hear from them, but I rarely hear back. If I'm working with a publicist who has had a relationship with that outlet or that person for years and they reach out to pitch me for them, they're much more likely to listen and give a yes because they have relational collateral there. So I think what's important about a literary agent is they have relational collateral. They have career collateral. They are rubbing shoulders with publishing houses, with editors, and they have been working on those relationships. They've been able to yield results before in the past. Whereas when you're flying solo, you're you're just basically, you, there's like no sort of warm lead. You're going in completely cold. Also, I think what is really cool about having a literary agent is I know for a fact I would not have gotten the book deal I would have without her. I was getting book offers for to write $10,000 for a book. I signed at $160,000. So if I would have gone on my own, maybe I could have gotten that number up a little bit. Let's say even I doubled that number. What a, like wow, like I'm going to double what they offer me. I'm going to write a book for $20,000. With a literary agent, I was able to sign for 160. And I really don't believe I would have been able to do that without her. What also is really helpful about having a literary agent is you have an advocate in your court. And that is really crucial, not only in the negotiation process and in the process of them pitching and signing the contracts, but in the editing process. Like, hey, agent, I need you to send an email to... HarperCollins and I need you to ask them these questions or I don't understand this part of my contract or I need an extension on this deadline. And it's just really good to have a buffer there. So that is super helpful. And then also she just educated me so much in the process. I didn't know what questions to ask. 
I would be in these meetings with different publishing houses trying to figure out which publisher to go with. And it reminded me so much of the recruiting process in college when I was deciding what college to commit to to play tennis. You're going to these colleges and you're being wined and dined and they're on their best behavior. They're showing you a good time. And it wasn't until after I signed and then went to the college I was going to play tennis at, it was like, oh, that was literally just a show. And I ended up having an an abusive coach, a terrible college tennis experience. And so part of that was in the college process, I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know what questions to ask the other athletes. And this felt similar to that process. You know, you're going into meetings, they're excited about your book proposal, they're kind of promising you the moon and stars. And it was so helpful to have someone there to help me figure out what questions should I be asking? What should I be looking for in this? So I am very pro-literary agent. I do have friends that have flown solo. But for me, I say literary agent all the way. Now, next, what's the big deal between self-publishing versus going with a publisher? Now, I'll say before I published with HarperCollins, I would have said like 100% if you want to write a book, you should always go with a publishing house. It adds legitimacy, which I still totally believe. They have a massive network or definitely a way bigger network than you do and have relationships with Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, different book people, wherever, Target, Walmart. They can get your books in stores that you just won't necessarily be able to get your books in on your own unless you have those relationships on your own. I personally don't have relationships with Target, Barnes & Noble, or Walmart, (laughs) And so having that publisher house behind you is really helpful in that way. Also, they have entire teams dedicated to in-house marketing. I will say that the publishing industry doesn't have a great reputation for their in-house marketing. But again, it's it's better than nothing. (laughs) And... It, if they're willing to put ad dollars towards marketing, like I will take it. Yes, I will do my own marketing for my own self, but to have a team that is also dedicated to helping you sell your book is helpful. And then another thing that I really, really like about publishing houses is that you just have an extra set of eyes. After I finished my first draft, I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way that one word out of this can be edited. I have looked over these chapters a thousand times and like nothing can be taken out. Nothing can be changed. This is a really good book. And three rounds of edits later, I remember saying so many times to my editor, oh, thank you so much for challenging me. This book is infinitely better because of your eyes. So being with a publishing house is super helpful because hopefully you have signed with a house that believes in you, believes in your message, and really wants you to have the best book out there. I had an incredible editor. Her name was Stephanie. She made my book so much better. So before going through this process, I would have said, yes, like only go through a publishing house. Now, I don't feel that way anymore. I think there's pros and cons to both. The pros of self-publishing is you you just have way more control. You don't have to get things greenlit. I mean, I had to fight tooth and nail for certain parts of my book, especially the chapter I did on masturbation. I mean, I was really, really having to show them my case. Whereas if I was on my own and I already know my conviction, I wouldn't have had to do that. 
there can also be opportunity to make more money. I really feel this way specifically if you have an existing audience. So for example, I have a friend, I think they have around 40,000 followers on Instagram. So they're not like, you know, Beyonce or anything, but they have a sizable following and they have a hardcover book that they sell for $35. And their cost per book is $5. So they're taking home $30 per book. Now, in selling 5,000 books, that gets them over $100,000. Whereas if I want to make back my six-figure book deal, I need to sell between thirty and 40,000 books just to break even before I make a single penny off royalties. I've sold around 10,000 books and I'm nowhere near breaking even, which means I'm nowhere near getting any sort of royalties. When you're self-publishing, you can sell less and have a chance to make more money, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I think that's about it. You still have more control, opportunity to make more money. Yeah, I think the control piece is really big. Unfortunately, it can be really hard to get a publishing deal if you don't have a big audience. Now, that's not every time. I mean, Beth Allison Barr, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, she's a professor at Baylor. Her book has been on like bestsellers list over and over and over again in this past year. And I think she had like 2,000 followers on Instagram, maybe less. Maybe she got a little bit more through her launch, but she just had something really important to say. But as a general rule of thumb, like I have a friend who's coming out with a book this year and she has 300 followers on Instagram and she couldn't get publishers to look at her. So she ended up self-publishing. And I think that is a great and very respectable route to go if that's what you want to do. Now, next thing, my friend today asked me, what's the number one thing you wish you'd have known before you wrote a book? And I thought of four things. (laughs) One, unfortunately, it's a lot more about your network than your message. And this felt so discouraging to me through the process. That being said, I am with a house that I'm so grateful to be a part of, but I did feel like there were a lot of moments where I was like, do you really care about what I'm writing? Or do you just see me as a person with 60,000 followers and who's connected to all these people who would be willing to promote my book, which then in turn moves or sells more books off the shelves? The end of the day, this is a business. And yes, the message is important, but they're hiring you for a service and your service is to produce a book that will sell. And I thought, oh my gosh, God has like called me to write this book and this is my message. And, you know, it doesn't matter how it sells. Like all that matters is like, I'm responding to God's call. Yes. And you're working for a business that is expecting you to yield results. So I just wish I would have known that because I think I felt hurt and discouraged and blindsided by how much the publishing houses cared about who I knew. I'm like, don't you just care about like what my message is and if I'm a good writer or not? No, they wanted to know like who will have you on their podcast? What conferences can you speak at? What churches support you? So that was discouraging. I also really, really wish I would have known. And my friend Tiffany Bloom told me this. So I don't really know where this total statistic came from, but she told me was, and she's written multiple books. She's been in the industry for years and years, 15 years, I think. She said for the average author for the entire lifespan of the book, it's the average amount of books sold is 3,000 books. 
And I wish I would have known that because I was supposed to sell like 40,000 books in the first year. And I think I've sold around 10,000 at this point. And I felt terrible. I felt like such a failure. I'm not even close to hitting the mark that I'm supposed to hit. And Tiffany was like, your book is doing so good. You should be so proud. And I was like, no, it's not. And she said, you don't understand. Most people don't ever sell more than 3,000 books. And it reminded me of how I've just felt like crap so often with my podcast. Like, oh my gosh, why does it feel like all my friends are having these top downloaded podcasts? Why not me? And so my average podcast downloads is between like seven and 9,000 downloads an episode, which I'm proud of, but also I want that to grow. And the average podcast gets around 165 downloads per episode. So here I am feeling like a failure. And it's like, well, you're already like way above average. Like what's going to be enough for you? So another thing I wish I would have known, number three, is that 85% plus of people never make a penny off of royalties. And so a lot of times you'll, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to sign this book deal. And then I'm going to make all this money, all this passive income off my book. Nope. Not not the case. Most people don't get that. I only know of one person in my life who's an author who has made any sort of royalties, and that's Jordan Lee Dooley. Dang, that girl has the Midas touch. She's so good at business and marketing, and her book did really well. And so she got royalties. Whereas I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to get this six-figure paycheck, and then I'm going to be getting like $50,000 royalty checks like every six months for the rest of my life. And no, it's been almost a year and I'm not even close to breaking even and I probably will never see a penny off of royalties for my book. Number four, the last thing I wish I would have known is I didn't know how much it was going to be up to me to sell the book. I was like, hey guys, I wrote the damn thing. Like, what are you guys going to do to sell it? And back to number one, where why it was so important to them to know my network is it's really up to me to sell this book. Yes, I had a publicist but the primary onus is on the author. And I just did not know that. I figured, oh, you write a book and it would behoove them to really do whatever it takes to sell your book. Nope. It's up to you. (laughs) So get ready. If you want to sell books, it honestly, sometimes I would feel like in the last year, I've like felt like a used car salesman or someone selling snake oil, like, oh, hey, like, oh, I want to see these books that I have in my jacket. Do you want a book? You get a book. You get a book. You get a book. It is really up to the author to sell the book. And I did not know that. Now, next question I get a lot is, how do you even start writing a book? Like, where do you even begin? First things first, read Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird. It's all about writing. And two things she says in that book that changed my life. One, you just got to sit down and do the damn thing. You just got to write the book. So many people their whole lives say, oh, I have a book that I want to write. It's right here in my head. I just need to get it on paper. Well, get it on paper. Start getting it on paper. You don't have time to take months off of work. One of my online friends, Gail Werner, She has been a writer for years and years and she works full time and has children and every day gets up, I don't know exactly the time frame if it's like 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. or 5.30 to 7.30, but she writes when she can. So you just got to write. 
whether it's 30 minutes a day, an hour a day, or you wanted people will sometimes be like, I'm going to write 1000 words every day, just start writing. Like when I knew I was gearing up for my second book that I'm now working on, I started writing for an hour every day, just in my journal, just free writing, but just start writing. You just got to do it. Otherwise, you're going to be like 99% of the world's population that says they have a New York Times bestseller in their brain and they never put it out there. The second thing is you have to be willing to write a shitty first draft. And that's what Anne Lamont says in her book. She talks all about shitty first drafts. And whenever I sit down to write, the first thing that happens is first I procrastinate, distract myself, do anything but actually write. And then when I actually sit down, I am judging myself with every word that I write because I'm like, this sucks. This isn't interesting. This isn't compelling. Like, oh my gosh, this isn't even what I want to say. I can't do this. You just have to get it all out there. You might write 10,000 words and then scrap all of it except for three sentences. And I definitely had so many days like that in my writing process. You just have to let it happen. You just have to let the shit come out. You know, you just have to do it. So how do you start writing a book? You just got to start writing and you have to be willing to write a shitty first draft. Now, how do you get before publishers? How do you get your idea before them? It's the same for all publishers. You have to have a book proposal, which is aka sort of like a 50-page business plan document. So number one thing I will tell you is stop. Do not write your entire book before pitching it. Although I'll say my pastor in New York, John Tyson, who has written multiple books, he told me, he's like, if I can tell you anything, this is from the John Tyson, if I can tell you anything, Kat, write your entire manuscript before going to your publisher. And he said that because if you have the whole thing written, they know upfront, like, this is exactly what I want to say. And there's no sort of like on the back end, them wanting to change or edit you. So I really get that. But also for myself, and I think most people, you don't just have time to be working on an entire manuscript for free. That works for John. It might work for you. It definitely does not work for me. And it's actually not what most publishers require, unless you're writing a fiction book. If you're writing a fiction book, you can write the whole thing and submit the manuscript. But otherwise, people want a book proposal. You can go to a link in our show notes. My literary agency, Christopher Farabee, they have a book proposal template. And it's the same skeleton for everyone. Basically, you need two sample chapters, a chapter outline overview, your unique selling proposition, a comparative analysis, meaning what three other books are out there right now in the last five years that are similar and meet a similar felt need? And how do those books do? And then from there, it's addressing the felt need. You know, why does this book need to be written? Why are you the person for the job? And then finally, you're really expanding on who is your network? Who would support this book? Organizations you're connected to, churches you're connected to, industries you're connected to, influencers you're connected to, leaders, all of that stuff. So it's the same proposal template for everyone. And I would work on that before writing the whole book. And that way, what basically what you do is then you pitch the proposal. You pitch this 50-page document instead of like spending years of your life working on this book that may or may not ever get published. 
Start with the proposal. That's how you get your foot in the door. How do you get your foot in the door with a big publishing house? You hit your book proposal out of the ballpark. Now, two more questions. Do you even want a big advance? Now, this is, people have different theories on this. For example, like I said earlier, over 85% of people never see any other pennies of profit or royalties outside of their advance. I have a friend who she signed a book deal at around 25,000 and her book has sold around 20,000 books. So she might not have gotten a lot of money up front, but now she's getting royalty checks, which are helpful because my whole book process, which I'll tell you about in a minute, was about four years. So yeah, I get the six-figure book deal, but spread out over four years, it's really not that significant in my life. So some people want to get paid up front big. Like I got paid up front big and I was able to buy a condo, which was a dream come true. I never thought I'd ever be able to buy property. I was also able to buy a car when I moved to Austin. I didn't have a car. I was able to buy that in cash. That was super helpful. I was able to use a portion of that for my book launch. Super helpful. Whereas I do see the value in like not getting paid a lot up front because it's like by the time you've finished the project and then you're promoting it for the next year or so, you're not getting paid for that. So to have royalties on that back end. So maybe it's not always bad signing a $10,000 or $20,000 book advance like because it's easier to get your numbers and then it's easier to get royalty checks. Now, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, like, well, I'm super discouraged. I don't have a following. I am, have a private Instagram. So it sounds like you can only write a book if you have a following. How do I get my work out there? So first I will say, yeah, people are going to look at you more if you have a following. It's just true. It's just true. And that frustrates me because I feel like there's so many people out there that have stories to tell that may not be able to because they don't have a social media following. Also, there's people who are writing books every day that have no business writing books, maybe me included. (laughs) But because they have this like Instagram or TikTok following or an email list, they're now positioned as a leader and saying unhelpful things. Like there's a lot of crappy books out there. But I believe room for all people at the table Again, look at a girl like Beth Allison Barr, didn't have a following, not an influencer, nothing. And The Making of Biblical Womanhood, first of all, is the most influential book in my personal life that I've read in the last five years, maybe longer. And it has repeatedly been on bestseller lists and been reprinted multiple times in the last year alone. So don't let numbers and not having numbers keep you from pursuing your dream. So what can you do? How do you get out there? Work on your craft. Get really good. Join writing groups. Get your work out there. Start a blog if you don't have one. Start serving people. Grow your audience. Grow that email list. Like Start an online presence if you want. But the most important thing is to write. And practice, practice, practice. Be committed to those shitty first drafts. And also, self-publishing is a great idea. I had another friend who self-published her, basically her life story and testimony. And I think she had 250 followers on Instagram. Maybe she sold like a thousand books total, but she wrote the book she felt God was calling her to write and got it out there in the world. And she self-published it. And I think that's amazing. So don't forget that that is a very valuable option. 
You may or may not know this, but I am working on my second book in 2022, and writer's block is freaking real. (laughs) Also, my motivation has taken a real hit this past year, but Thesis has been helping me through it. Thesis makes personalized supplement formulas that are specifically designed to boost your cognitive function. How? Well, it's based in the science of nootropics, which are natural and powerful ingredients like lion's mane, ginseng, and B12 that increase productivity, energy, and mental clarity. I've been taking my personalized creativity formula set for a few weeks now, and it includes things like ashwagandha, ginseng, and zembrin. My particular formula is designed to help me stay focused and creative, Hello, because I'm working on book number two. And it also is designed to help calm my nerves in social settings because the social anxiety for me has definitely increased over the pandemic. I can say in integrity, Thesis has supported me greatly, not only in my writing process, but getting back out there socially. Now, once you take their three-minute online quiz, Thesis will tell you which nootropic formulas are best suited for you and your needs. Right now, Thesis is offering our listeners 10% off your first starter kit when you visit takethesis.com slash cat. So go to takethesis.com slash cat to take this quiz and discover your own unique nootropic combination and save 10% on your starter kit. That's takethesis.com slash cat and make sure to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Spending hours trying to find the right doctor for you can be exhausting and stressful and overwhelming to say the least. And then after going through that process to find out that the doctor you found doesn't take your insurance, it literally makes me want to throw my phone out the door. And almost enough to make me want to give up on trying to even find a doctor. But thankfully, there's an easy solution now. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. It's as easy as selecting a doctor and choosing an in-person or video visit based on your needs and your schedule. And boom, you're set. No more, I'll make that appointment sometime later. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. I am one of them, and you should be too. It has completely changed the way I experience scheduling doctor's appointments, aka it has removed the stress and the frustration and overwhelm. Go to ZocDoc.com slash cat and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are even available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash K-A-T. ZocDoc dot com slash cat. All right, so I wanted to get you those seven questions before I shared with you my story, hoping that it would give you a little bit of context. Also, I feel like sometimes, not sometimes, basically all the time, I'm a TMI person. I love context. And so someone's like, well, how was your day? And I'm like, well, it all started in kindergarten when I tripped. And so sometimes I can give too much context. So I might be doing that with this story and this whole series. I guess what I'm saying is I feel a little insecure that I'm doing that. For me, if I hadn't written a book and I was curious about the process, I would want to know all the details. So I'm just giving you what I want. So let me tell you about my story writing the book. When I first moved to New York City, within that first year, you know this, I 
dated more in one year than I had in a decade. I totally fell in love and I got heartbroken. And in that process, I started a blog series about that guy that I was dating and I called it Sexless in the City. Recognize the name? It basically turned my blog from, oh, a couple hundred people are reading a blog post to like 10,000 people are reading a blog post, 20,000 people are reading a blog post. I had no idea that people would resonate with it. In fact, I think if I knew that many people would be reading it, I would have written it a lot differently. Basically, I was writing like Buddy the Elf, I'm in love and I don't care who knows it. And taking pages straight up from my diary or my journal and turning them into a blog post. And I learned a few things in that process. One, the last person that you expect to read something, see something, listen to something is typically going to be the first one. Okay. I didn't tell my ex at the time that I was writing this series about our love and our breakup because he was super private. And I don't even think he had Instagram at the time. And I thought, oh, he doesn't care. He doesn't read my blog anyways. And so I won't tell him. And he turns out he did read my blog, even though we weren't together. And he was super hurt and frustrated that I would share our story without talking to him, which is fair. And that being said, I didn't share anything about him. I didn't say his name, what he looked like, where he's from, or any of that, any identifying factors, which I totally could have, and I didn't. And I actually made him look really good because he was freaking awesome. But it's definitely helped inform me writing as the years have gone by because I know that if there's ever anything that I haven't dealt with in person and I write about it or talk about it, chances are that person is going to hear it or read it, which is one of the reasons why going live with that podcast in December, like I kind of suck at dating that episode because I'm not talking with my ex right now and he already knows all the stuff that I shared publicly on that episode. It feels like super humbling to be putting out there in the world. Like I'm still not over this person and chances are this might get back to him. And I just, my ego just gets to be okay with it if I want to share about this stuff. So huge learning curve there. Also, by the time I started the series Sexless in the City, I had been writing about a 750 to 1,000 word blog post every week for several years. In hindsight, I can look back and see, man, God was preparing me to write and I didn't even know what for. So why I started writing every week and why I committed to writing a 750 to 1,000 word blog post is because one of my friends who is a copy editor was like, girl, your writing is crap. And she said it much nicer than that, but your writing is crap. Your blog posts are not great. The grammar's terrible. You have run-on sentences. And I was like, listen, I think I honestly missed that section of elementary school. I think I called in sick that day. I don't know what happened, but I almost failed a remedial level writing course my last semester of college. I've never considered myself a writer. And she said, look, if you're going to be doing a blog and you want to be professional, you need to get better at writing. So I hired her to help me become a better writer. 
And so every week I'd write a blog post and she would edit it and teach me about run-on sentences and commas and semicolons and parentheses and apostrophes and being concise with what I'm writing and saying. And she was my copy editor for, I think, four years. So by the time I came out the Sexless in the City blog series and it, I don't know, like 10x star website traffic, I was definitely more in a rhythm of writing and thought, man, okay, this is resonating. Maybe I'm not this terrible writer that my teacher in college told me I was. I think I believed I was a crappy writer because some authority figure in my life told me that I was. And then it wasn't until someone who loved me and saw a piece of gold in me that I couldn't see called that forth and mentored me and coached me and trained me to get better. And then also in that process, I had to be committed to getting better. I didn't know that down the road I was going to write a book. I just knew that it mattered to have excellence in my craft. And so I committed to that process. So years later, when the door opened to actually write a book, I actually had the tools to write the book. Now, did I write a perfect book grammatically? Am I as good of a writer as Madeline Engel um, or John Steinbeck? H to the no. I have so much room to grow and I know that. But I have grown and I have been committed to my growth. So this blog series goes live and I thought, you know what? I could make a book out of this. I did what most people do and yeah, I have a book in me. I could do this. Actually, the guy I went to prom with my senior year of high school ended up seeing that blog series and reached out to me and he was like, Kat, you're a really good writer. This should be a book. I'm actually in the publishing industry now and I help people write book proposals. Do you want help with this? Like you definitely have something here. And that felt awesome to have someone in the industry like see me and believe me and also someone who knew me and had known my story for 15 plus years. And so he flew out to New York City for a weekend. This was about eight years ago. We blitzed my book. We like created chapter outlines. And at that point, what I wanted to write my book about was this amazing love story and heartbreak that I had with this guy in New York that my City blog series was about. And I wanted to pair that with me working through my daddy issues and me growing up in a home with addiction and then my dad getting sober when I was in college and God really redeeming my story, redeeming my relationship with my dad, which then helped me be open to love in a new way. And the more we spent that weekend together, the more he was like, I just don't think this is your story. I don't think this this is the story that you're supposed to tell. He said, no one really relates to the getting swept off your feet, sex in the city moment that you're referring to. And he goes, but everyone can relate to. And he pointed on a piece of paper to a story that I didn't want to include in my book about an ex that I had had in my 20s that I write about in my book. It's the guy, I call him Mr. I'm Done. And he goes, everyone has one of those. Everyone has the guy who made all the promises, who ran behind them, who broke their heart, the guy that you just couldn't get over. He was like, that's your story. You need to write about that. And I was like, no, what do you know about anything? I'm not writing about that. I'm going to have a rom-com how to lose a guy in 10 days sort of book and testimony and people are going to love it. And he was like, okay, well just sit with it. And so he left. 
I'm sitting on this story that I think is going to be my book. And I couldn't find any open doors. I remember going to lunch with my friend. She's a pastor and a speaker, Bianca Oltoff. She had just written her first book or she was in the process of writing her first book. And I was like, Bianca, I want to write a book. Like, how do I do it? What did you do? I believe she connected me with one of her editors and nothing really came out of it. And then I just was hitting wall after wall after wall, closed door after closed door. And here's what I will say. Sometimes people are like, God, just open the door. Give me a sign. Let me know I'm supposed to move forward and I'll know I'm supposed to move forward because the door is open. Sometimes you move forward because the door is open and sometimes a door is closed and you knock on it. Sometimes the door is closed and you open it. Sometimes the door is closed and you kick the door down. There's different things for different seasons. So I think it's about discerning which is the space an invitation for you in that moment. And what I realized is, you know what? This isn't my time. And I also realized I'm actually not done healing from this relationship. As beautiful as that relationship was, I was heartbroken. I was devastated. And it took me several years to get over him. And here I was a couple months into the breakup, wanting to make my pain, my gushing, bleeding heart, a teaching moment for strangers. And I think we do that so often. I think that we want to bypass our grief and pain by making our story a testimony for someone else. And it's not that it can't be a testimony or an encouragement, but what is it to sit in your pain? What is it to sit in your grief? What is it to feel rejected before immediately getting broken up with and saying, hey guys, you guys have been asking me, how do I get over a breakup? And now I have 10 steps to get over a breakup. It feels so inauthentic and it feels like a very cheap attempt at trying to bypass your emotions. So I realized that was going on a little bit and was like, okay, Kat, let's just live your life a little bit. Let's get a little bit more healing. And so I laid it down. I didn't really think a lot about it. I kind of moved on with my life. I was continuing photography, continuing my stuff with the refined woman. And also in that time, because that breakup was the breakup that set me on the trajectory to unpack and deconstruct purity culture and what does the Bible really say about sex and is masturbation a sin and what about modesty and all of that stuff. I was also personally going through a ton of those questions that I ended up unpacking in my book, but I was just doing it in real time with community. And then three years later, January 2018, I was on Jamie Ivey's The Happy Hour podcast. And she has an incredible podcast, huge following. And I felt so honored that she would want to talk to me, was a guest on her podcast. We talked about being a Christian, being a business owner, entrepreneur, photographer in New York City. Towards the end of the episode, she asked me, what is it like to date and be single in New York City? What's that like for your faith? You know, Jamie, funny you ask, because I have been on a journey and went on to share with her, you know, I dated this guy. We almost had sex. We didn't. It's kind of sent me on this trajectory of figuring out what I believe about all this stuff. And here's what I'm learning about myself. Here's what I'm learning about God. Here's what I'm learning about what scripture says. And, you know, I'm just kind of fumbling my way through it and asking hard questions. 
It was the end of the podcast. I mean, we may have talked about that for five or 10 minutes. The episode goes live. You know, Jamie has a huge podcast. The episode got more than 100,000 downloads is what I heard from her team. Within a few weeks, I had several thousand emails in my inbox from women all over the world asking me questions like, is masturbation a sin? Is not having sex before marriage still a thing? I love God, but I'm sleeping with my boyfriend. Is the patriarchy like for real in the church? How do we deal with that? And I was kind of annoyed. I was like, why are they asking me? I'm not an authority on this. I'm just living my life. I'm just doing my own research. Why are they asking me all these questions? But I saved all the emails and I put them in a spreadsheet. I was like, maybe this is like good to know for like some R&D. Then a couple weeks after that, within a week of each other, I got two book offers in my email. And it was so weird. It was like the same thing. It was two different publishing houses and they both said, hey, we've been following you for a while. We think you have a book in you and we think now is the time for you. I got on the phone with one of them. The other one flew to New York to have drinks with me at Soho House in the meatpacking district. And I sat there. I remember it was it was nighttime. It was dark. And, you know, the lights are low in Soho House because it's, it's a vibe. And this woman offered me $10,000 to write a book. I mean, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about the book process. And I was like, you know what? I don't know how the heck I could write a book for $10,000. It takes me eight hours to write a 750-word blog post. How could I ever write a 60,000-word book and make $10,000 off of it? I would be a homeless person. I know what that would take from me, and I don't know that I could do that for $10,000. Also, at that time, my photography day rate was about $10,000. So I was like, I could make $10,000 in one day. Or I could like write a book that would take me, I don't know, a couple years and basically make a dollar a day. No, thank you. I was hopefully kind about it, but I was like, I'm not interested. So I I actually don't really want to do this. And I also did not want to become, quote unquote, that girl. Once you start talking about singleness, dating, sexuality, it becomes your shtick. And I was like, I don't want that to be my shtick. I am an editorial photographer. I'm doing marketing. I do not want my shtick to be that I am like the single virgin. I do not want to be the 40-year-old virgin talking about my sexless life in front of thousands and thousands of people. Little did I know, I kind of already was doing that. And so I was super resistant to it, which I look back now and I'm like, it's so interesting because three years before that, I would have died for that. I would have jumped at the chance for a $10,000 book contract. But I just thought there's just no way I could do that financially. Fast forward a few months, it's May of 2018, and I speak at Jamie Ivey's yearly event called Happy Hour Live in Austin. And I sat randomly next to this woman who was a literary agent. And we just, you know, had some nice convos. We exchanged numbers and we just kind of became buddies and kept in touch. And she was like, hey, I'm going to be in New York this summer. We should grab drinks. I'll be hanging out with some of my authors. You should come. I was like, sure. Yeah. Keep me in the loop. So about a month later, it's June of 2018 and I'm sitting in my bed and I'm feeling so resistant to the book stuff because it's at this point, it's been six months since the podcast with Jamie Ivey. I am continuing to get emails and DMs every single day about dating, sexuality, and the church, and 
purity culture and modesty. And I was starting to talk more and more publicly about it. And the more and more I talked publicly about it, it was like, oh my gosh, maybe this is my thing. Maybe this is the thing that people want me to talk about because somehow when I say the words out loud that everyone's really thinking or ask the question that everyone's asking, it somehow gives others the permission to ask the question as well. And so... I sat on my bed one night and I was feeling so much resistance in my work, so much resistance in my heart. And I just felt like God had an invitation for me. It wasn't a right or wrong or a good or bad. It was just like, hey, there's this invitation to come play. There's an invitation for you to write a book and you don't have to do it. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It's not sinful if you don't do it. It's just an invitation and it's yours if you want it. And so I sat there in my bed and I said, okay, okay, I will say yes to this. And it is wild. Even just the energetic release I felt after I said yes, the release in my business, it seemed like I said yes to that. And I didn't realize how much I had been swimming upstream against the current. And then I said yes. And then I just felt like, like I just started swimming with the current. And life was not easy, but it became filled with a much more ease. So that was June. July, that literary agent is in New York City meeting with our mutual friend, Andy Andrew. And we grabbed drinks again at Soho House. I had a membership there at the time. And I was like, I got to get my money's worth. So every meeting I'm ever having, like we're meeting at Soho House. We had drinks. It was a great time, great convos. And I left that meeting feeling like, you know what? I feel like I would sign with her. And I don't know when that time is supposed to be that I'm supposed to sign with her, but I'll know it. And I also felt this attachment inside of me from like years ago. When I was in college, I read Shauna Nyquist's book, Cold Tangerines, and also Rob Bell's book, Sex God. And I love the way those two authors write so much. It like pierces my soul. It's relatable. It's authentic and vulnerable. It's bold. And I just remember thinking in college, like, I love the way these people write. If I ever write a book, I want to like write a book like that. I want to write like them. And so when these books were kind of coming to my table, I thought, you know, if I ever write a book, it would be such a dream if I could have the, the team that Shauna and Rob had. And if I could be on the same imprint or publishing house that they were on, I had no idea what publishing house they're on or what agents they have, but it was just like this little dream. So leave that meeting with the literary agent and kind of go on my way through the summer. And she was back in town in October for a conference that Andy Andrew was putting on. She is free. And we were both going to it. And I just felt peace. I knew that I want to sign with this person and I'm doing this. Like I'm ready to say yes. So we met up at Lincoln Center in Manhattan and we went to the Smith to have drinks. And I looked at her and I said, hey, I want to write a book and I want you to represent me. And how do you feel about that? And she said, God told me in May that I was going to sign you, that you were going to have to come to me and it was going to be when you were ready. So I knew on this trip, you were going to ask me to be your agent. So yes, I would love to sign you. 
So that was just kind of this like crazy moment and felt affirming. And so October 2018, I signed with my agent and it was getting towards the holidays. And so we both kind of decided, let's wait till January 2019 to start the proposal process. So January 2019 rolls around. I'm like gearing up to start this super intense book proposal process. January 1st, I find out my dad relapses and flew home immediately, was with family for the week, doing interventions and really hard stuff and came back to New York that second week in January 2019. And I was a zombie. I was like the walking dead for a good six months. I was depressed. I felt like the floor was ripped out from underneath me. It felt like my dad had died is what it felt like. My confidant, one of my best friends, my kindred spirit, just so much betrayal and pain. And I reached out to my agent and said, hey, I cannot do this book proposal right now. I am gutted and I'm hardly able to get out of bed. And I knew I had signed with the right person because she said, hey, you're going to write this book when you're supposed to write this book. And however I can support you, let me know. So I tabled the book and I didn't think about it until July, seven months later. So seven months later, I was like waking up from the dead, started my book proposal. I thought it would take a week. It took almost two months of full-time work. It was really, really hard. And I didn't think I could do it. And I literally almost got to the point where I hired a ghostwriter because I'd never written a chapter before. I'd never written a chapter outline of a book before. I was completely out of my comfort zone. I felt like this agent had signed me because she believed I could fly a rocket to the moon, even though I had never flown a rocket to the moon and I was given a manual written in Russian. And I was like, I don't know if I'm the girl for the job, but like, if you guys believe I can do this, maybe I can. I ended up doing it. I finished it. Took two months. September 2019, she sent out pitches. October, we got meetings scheduled with a bunch of different publishing houses. And the closest I can explain it to is it reminded me of being recruited for a college athlete position. They were like whining and dining me and telling me how much they loved me and like had underlined words all over my book proposal. And I thought I was going to be going into these meetings having to sell myself. But it was the opposite way around. It was really kind of jarring, actually. So all those meetings happened. November, the offers came in. And I thought, man, I'll be lucky if I get one offer. And I told my agent, I want a six-figure book deal. I don't want to sign unless I get a six-figure book deal. And she was like, you know what? You're being a little bit of a diva. Most first-time authors don't get more than $25,000. You'll be lucky if you get 50. I think we got either six or eight offers. The lowest one was 35,000 and the highest one was 150,000. I mean, jaw on the floor. I was like, what the what? I don't even understand what's going on. Then there was a few weeks of negotiations and basically I was between two publishing houses. I was offered $150,000 for one book or $160,000 for two books. Now, Duh, you want to go for the one that's one book at $150,000, right? (laughs) Well, what ended up happening with that particular publisher is they were super conservative and said, you know what? You have a really racy story. Mind you, I've never had sex. The book is called Sexless in the City. 
And they said, you know, when you talk about your past, it needs to be from a posture of, I so regret everything I did. I won't do that again. I'm so ashamed. And they even had edited out anytime I talked about alcohol or being at a bar or even the word panties they took out. I was like, you know what? No, I need to be able to tell my story. And that is perpetuating a shame cycle. I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. And I actually don't regret anything that I've done sexually. Everything has taught me and I am thankful. I'm grateful for every experience I've had. And I will not in integrity say that I'm ashamed of this. And I don't know if I'm not ever going to do those things again. And so it was definitely a moment of, am I going to choose my integrity or am I going to choose money? And I would love to say that it was an easy decision, but it wasn't the easiest decision. I was like, man, that's $100,000. Like that's $150,000. I would basically be walking away from $70,000. And that is a lot of money to walk away from. Or maybe it was closer to a hundred. I can't think of the math right now. But ultimately, I decided to go with Zondervan with Harper Collins, and I signed a two book deal at $160,000. I was absolutely shocked. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I'm still like, wow, how did that happen? I just feel like there was so much favor there. Signed in November. And then also, I'm telling you all these details because I just want you to know the process of what writing a book is like. So, signed in November, Christmas happened, and then January through May was my first big deadline. And that was when the first draft was due. So this is 2020. And all I can say, and I don't want to say this lightly, I know that millions and millions of people, even people close to me have really, really, really suffered in the pandemic and because of COVID. But it was honestly a blessing in disguise for me because I was not getting any writing done in New York because I had a job doing photography full-time and I was running The Refined Woman. And then on my free time, I was supposed to be writing a book. It wasn't happening. And I can totally see now why people lock themselves at a beach or in the mountains for a month or two to do their book because I just wasn't getting anything done. And so March of 2020, the pandemic hits and I fly home to Dallas for a quote unquote a week. And then I got stuck there for three and a half months. And I was able to fully focus on my book, which was such a gift. So I turn in that first draft and I'm like, there is nothing else that needs to be edited off of this. These guys are not even going to have to cross one T or dot one I. (laughs) And then I got my first round of edits back in July of 2020. And here's the thing about the edits is you never know when you're going to get them. And I'm like checking in every week. Hey, is there an ETA on the first round of edits? Like I'm trying to make plans for the summer and, you know, want to make sure I have like the time and space to dedicate to the edits when they get back. Radio silence, nothing, nothing, nothing. I get an email dropped in my inbox for round one edits sometime in July. And they're like, we want these next Friday, which is insane because... I basically have to go through my entire book with a fine tooth comb and look at their edits. And I am a stubborn person. And so I pushed back on a ton of the edits. Some of the edits were like, hey, you need to explain this more or this doesn't make sense. Or you're saying this, but like you need some more quotes or theological backing on this. So it was super hard. And I feel like the edits always came at the most inconvenient time. Like, one round of edits came the week I moved from New York to Texas. Like literally I was 
driving. Oh my gosh, this was like the worst day of my life. My stuff had arrived to Austin and like half of it was shattered in the move and it was the most stressful weekend. And so we unpack everything and my mom and sister and I go down the street to get margaritas. I don't know what was in those margaritas. I had two margaritas. I've never been so blackout drunk in my life. I feel like I was drunk for like 14 hours and it was terrible. I was supposed to write all that night. Nope, I ended up being drunk and woke up the next morning. My mom and I had to drive from Austin to Dallas. My deadline was Monday morning. So I'm hung over trying not to barf and I am writing, typing in the car. My mother is a saint because I couldn't concentrate if there was music on. So she literally put her headphones on while she was driving and I am like sipping on Gatorade, writing the edits of my book. That was just one experience of worst case scenarios when I got my edits back. But that happened three times, July, August, and October of 2020. And then after the third round, I was like, okay, you say your final piece, like this is the one that's going to go to print. And then October of 2020 through April of 2021, my book launched, we started bi-weekly marketing meetings. So it would be like me, my agent, and like 12 people from Zondervan on a call. So many people like responsible for helping sell my book. They also hired a publicist for me, which not a lot of authors get. So I was so grateful for that. And then I also hired a publicist on my own because I just felt like, you know what, let's go bigger, go home. You launch your first book once. And so I had committed to spending 20000 of my own dollars on my book launch in addition to everything that they were doing. So I think I think they spent maybe $60,000 on my book launch, which is crazy. I spent about 20000 How I used that was like I hired my own publicist. I hired a book launch manager. I paid out of pocket for my book trailer, which is gorgeous. I love it, love it, love it so much. Although it was like 10 degrees outside in New York City when we were filming it. I paid like around $5,000 for that. And that money like disappeared real quick. I will say going back that there's so much I wouldn't do again for my book launch. I love my book trailer, but I don't think it actually moved the needle on anything. I did over 150 podcast episodes. I don't know that that really moved the needle on really anything. So it was just hard because I honestly just don't know what worked and what didn't work. But I just know that I was like exhausted when it was all over. My book actually launches in April. By that time, I had been doing about five interviews a day, like five hour-long interviews a day, five days a week since January. And that went from like January through July. And it's January 2022, and I still have trickled in press from that. So, I mean, I went hard. And I was doing all that while I'm running my photography business, while I'm running The Refined Woman. I was doing daily Instagram content around my book topics, IG Lives, IG TVs, email campaigns. I had a book launch team to help me get reviews on Amazon. I was partnering with other relationship coaches and people that sold online courses to like give my books to their audience. Like I was doing anything and everything scrappy because like I said earlier, it's up to you to sell your own book. 
And so I was like, I'm just going to go hard. At the end of the day, I'm just going to go hard. And June hits and I am freaking exhausted. And my goal from the publisher was to sell 40,000 books in my first year. And listen, it's January 2022 and I've sold around 10,000. That number still really bums me out. Even though I know the average book sells like 3,000 for their whole lifetime, it still feels like, man, I think where I feel still feel a little shame is like, man, they paid me so much money to write this book and I gave my blood, sweat and tears and I paid a ton of money out of my pocket to get this book out there. And I just feel like it didn't work. It feels like such a disappointment. And then on the other side of that, I'm like 10,000 people bought my book. Like, holy cow, like what a gift. Like if that impacts one person's life, like that's worth it. But it's definitely been a mind screw. And so post-launch, like in the summer, I just don't think I realized how exhausted I would be from the whole thing. And I also remember right before my book launch, my team at Zondervan was like, get ready for the marathon. And I was like, wait a second. I thought the marathon was writing the book and doing like the pre-launch and the press. Like, I feel like I've been running a marathon and book launch day hits and I'm done. And they're like, oh no, this is when it just gets started. And I was like, why didn't anyone tell me this? I want to die and crawl in a hole and never come out. And I basically did crawl in a hole last summer. And, you know, people say writing a book is like birthing a baby, you know? And what happens after you birth a baby? A lot of people get postpartum. And I did. I was burned out. And also, Christians are mean. I got so much hate from Christians. I got disinvited from podcasts, disinvited from conferences. I've been called a heretic and everything. And the thing that's so interesting is, you know, one of my best friends helped me in my book process. She read every single chapter as I was writing it, gave me feedback that was so helpful and meaningful. And she believed in me so much. She was one of the top people that believed in me in this process. And she's an atheist. And just had so much grace and empathy and compassion for my process and so believed that my message needed to be out there in the world and that this book needed to be out there for women of faith. And yet people of faith have been so mean. Like Christians are so mean to their kind. Like we obliterate our own kind on the battlefield. And that was so painful. I got obliterated for the masturbation stuff and really just demonized for asking questions. It's like, oh my gosh, if we ask a question, God can't handle it or something. And uh, man, if God's real, like God just doesn't have a fragile ego. Like I just really believe that. So last fall, I like stuff with my family is still super hard and I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And then about October of 2021. So now we're almost four years into this whole process. This whole process started January, 2018 and October, November, I am like crawling to the finish line of 2021. And I get an email from my editor. She's like, are you ready for book number two? We need you to start writing it like this January. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to die. Like, I don't think I will ever have anything left in me to ever write anything else. Like there's nothing inside of me. (sighs) But I'm contractually obligated to write another book. And so I took a lot of time off in December and I read a ton. 
I just read, read, read. I read like the Bridgerton books and Beach Read and The Nightingale. And then I also read a lot of books on sexuality and just just read and read and read. And the more I rested and the more I read and the more I played, I started getting ideas for my next book, God of the Grey. And I remember being on a plane ride home from Sedona on December 23rd of 2021. And I just had this like moment of inspiration and wrote out all my chapters for my new book. And I was like, wow, interesting. Look what happens when we play. Look what happens when we play and we get out in nature and we get into our bodies. Like the inspiration comes. So I am starting book number two and I am like kind of scared because that was four years. So here's the thing. From start to finish, it was four years. And I signed a two book, 160K book deal. So 80K per book. So for four years, that's $20,000 a year. And then I spent $20,000 on my book launch. So I basically got paid $60,000 for this book. And that's not a lot of money (laughs) for like everything I did. And which again, makes it seem crazy when people are like, I'll pay you $10,000 to write a book. I'm like, oh my gosh, no wonder everyone and their mom told me you don't write a book to get rich. Write a book because you have a message to share with the world. And I think I thought I was going to be the exception to the rule and I was going to be like a billionaire from writing a book. And really, I think that book process was for me working through my own faith and my own doubts and getting it on paper and then sharing a message that God had put on my heart for the world. So, yeah, you're not going to get rich writing a book. I'll just I'll just put it that way. <laughs> what I feel like right now is, you know how moms have these traumatic birthing stories and then they say these endorphins come in your body after you have a baby and it like makes you forget the trauma of the actual birth and then soon after they're like oh I want another baby that's how I feel right now so that's my story that's how I went from seven dollars a day to a six-figure book deal nothing about my life has happened overnight and There's no hack. There's no three steps. There's no 10 steps. There's no 20 steps. I don't know. All I can do is share with you my story. I'll tell you that writing is work. It's freaking hard. Chasing your dreams takes out of your mind commitment like no other. We all want the breakthrough, but the reality is we have to go through a breaking to go through it. You have to break to move through it to the other side of the breakthrough. And a lot of times we don't want that because that's painful, it's uncomfortable, it hurts our ego. My ego has died a thousand deaths in this book process. And here's another thing I'll say. You might say, oh man, look at your story. You had all these like random encounters and oh, you're the guy you went to prom with is in the writing industry and you randomly sat next to this person at a conference. God is in charge of like all these crazy details, but you also have to be open to them. And one of my friends said recently, things don't happen quickly, but they happen all of a sudden. And I don't really think things happened quickly or all of a sudden in my writing story, as I hope you can see now. My aunt says this to me, our suddenlies don't come out of a vacuum. They happen after years and years of showing up day in, day out, faithfully in discipline so that when the blessing or the breakthrough comes, you're actually ready for it. I didn't know that eight years ago when I hired my friend to teach me how to be a copywriter that I would be needing that information to write a book. I wouldn't have been able to write the book 
if eight years prior, I hadn't said yes to that. The breakthroughs come in those tiny moments of saying yes and being led by curiosity in our everyday lives. So what is something that lights you up? What feels impossible? What 10 years ago that you're living now, would you not believe would be a reality? Now, how can you dream about the next 10 years of your life? And how can you start living that dream right now by just taking one tiny step? Maybe you don't have what it takes to quote unquote, write a book right now, but maybe you can start journaling for 10 minutes every day. Our suddenly moments happen by choosing to show up faithfully in our everyday lives over a long period of time so that when the door opens, we're ready for it. All right, that's it. This is super long. Next week is a really, well, it's a good, it's a hard episode. It was a hard episode to record. It was emotional to record, but um, you can actually listen to next week's episode today on patreon.com slash the refined woman. I'm giving a dating update and talking about grieving without going into a shame cycle and also how I miss the church, but it's still kind of triggering. So go to patreon.com slash the refined collective. Thank you for being here for this long ass episode.